This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Monday, November 25th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. David Brody of the Christian Broadcasting Network got a sit-down with Nikki Haley, widely regarded as a non-shameful former member of the Trump administration. Brody asked the big question on everyone's mind. What is your view kind of spiritually on the sovereignty of God and, and what he's doing exactly by putting Donald Trump as president of the United States? Lots of ways to go with this bit of theology. I would say the question, though, is a strong candidate for I reject the premise. Lots of people are rejecting the premise left and right. If there ever was a time to reject the premise, it'd be this one. I mean, I can see, of course, God's involved in ensuring that Ohio State beats Penn State and that Wisconsin beats Purdue. I mean, God's really into the Big Ten schedule, plus all the acting and singing awards that God has to play a part in. But still, I, if asked, would not full-throatedly embrace the idea that God is so good at this political thing that he knows how to give Donald Trump the presidency by winning the Electoral College, but not the popular vote. I mean, if it were the work of God to only affect the hearts of 80,000 voters in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, that is impressive, but I think it's a little dicey. I don't know. Maybe God only affected the hearts in Pennsylvania and Michigan, and then he closed down some polling places in Milwaukee to suppress the black vote. Maybe that's what God did. Maybe that's how God works. I don't claim to get it. But if God can do that, if God can win an election by winning the Electoral College, but not the popular vote, I don't know, maybe God can have a team cover the point spread, but not win outright, asking for a friend who had Ohio State in a three-team teaser, the holy trinity of teasers. Okay, okay. So that was the question that David Brody put to Nikki Haley. Let's see how she answered. By putting Donald Trump as president of the United States. Well, you know, I think it goes to show that things, everything happens for a reason. Yes, that is it. That's diplomacy. Nikki nailed it. The way I see it is, look at the results of Donald Trump as president. Just look at the results. Wow. Oh, she's going there. See, I did not expect her to be so blunt about Trump's failures. Go on. Look at the results of Donald Trump as president. Look at, we have more friends and family with jobs than we've ever had before. We have um, the economy moving in a direction it's, you know, hasn't been in a long time, but is doing great. We are acknowledging real truths with a president that had the courage to move the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And there's been a lot of courage that has come from this president to change what was the status quo. Courage to change the status quo. Really? Or is it more like never reading the briefing papers? Is it courage or more that no one told him we shouldn't let Navy SEALs kill just anyone they want? I gotta say, of all the crazy crap that Americans go in for, the large portion of Americans who not only have these beliefs, sure, fine, have them, but are eager to sit for an interview where the question is, why does God like Donald Trump more than, I'm not even going to say Hillary Clinton, more than active religious person Marco Rubio, or more than 
actual religious person who probably believes these very ideas, Ben Carson, the number of people who would sit for that is astounding. I am not mocking anyone's religion. I am, though, mocking anyone who has a desire, really a need, to use a televised interview to profess outlandish, truly crazy claims as a means of establishing your relevance to the Republican Party. That does go in for some criticism of the questioner, of the question answerer, and I guess by implication of the Republican Party. Are you mad that I'm saying this? Well, if so, just remember, God works in mysterious ways. Now, what I have to do is not get hit by a lightning bolt for the next few weeks. On the show today, will I visit Nikki Haley's old stomping ground, South Carolina. Its importance in presidential politics may be exaggerated. I'm taking South Carolina to task. I'm going to Carolina in my spiel. But first, Sherrod Brown is the senior senator from Ohio, and as befits a person in that position, he was assigned a desk on his first day of work. Now, this desk, Desk 88, had some other notable occupants, Bobby Kennedy, William Proxmire, Hugo Black, Al Gore Sr., George McGovern, and Senator Brown became intrigued, started researching these former senators, and turned the project into a book. So we talk about how to get things done in the Senate and where Senator Brown stands on the issues, but mostly where he sits. Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America, author Senator Sherrod Brown, up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Sherrod Brown is a U.S. senator from Ohio. He's written a book called Desk 88, Eight Progressive Senators Who Changed America. And the conceit of the book is that it's his desk. On his desk in the U.S. Senate, there are names. And etched upon the desk is history, some known, some less known. And he found eight heroes of progressive America. Now, I have to say, when a senator writes a book, I grade it on a curve. I've, I, I often want to speak about a senator despite the book. If this book were written by a historian, not a senator, I'd still want to talk to the author. And yet, this gives me a chance to talk to a senator and an author. Thank you for coming on, Senator well, th Brown. Thank you for saying it that way. All right. Let's talk a little bit about the tradition of desk picking and the actual physical desks. What did you know about, I'm sure you first gained election to the Senate, you're a member of the House of Representatives, maybe you know these traditions, maybe you don't, but how are you oriented as to, all right, uh, here's where you're going to be working for the next six to however many years? Yeah, I, I didn't know the tradition. In fact, I talked about this book with a group of senators at a lunch last week, Democratic senators, and a number of senators have never even really looked at the desk drawers. I mean, it's just not something people think about, but I, I love history, so I did. Basically, it works this way. When you come to the Senate, you choose your office, you choose your committee assignments, you choose your desk place on the Senate floor, mostly by seniority. So there were 10 unoccupied desks in the freshman class as we scurried around the floor our first month to decide where to sit. And there, you know, there are no, you're not sitting behind a pole at old Shea Stadium. You have mm -hmm. a good view of everything. So, um, I, 
I'd heard this tradition a week earlier that senators carve, some senators carve their names in the desk drawers. So I started pulling out desk drawers. And the fourth one, I, I spotted McGovern, South Dakota, uh, Hugo Black, uh, Ribicoff of Connecticut. And then I saw the one word Kennedy. So Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, sat a few desks away. And I said, Ted, come here a second, would you? And he walks over. And I said, which brother's desk is this? It just says Kennedy and no state. And he said, well, it's got to be Bobby's. I have Jack's desk. So I took that desk in large part because of that, but some other names. And my wife, who is a, a, a journalist, had um, knows I love history, and she sent she got a bunch of books off eBay that were out of print about senators, costing about three dollars and fifty cents each, I think, because nobody was reading them. Because that's how and much I, we yeah, value historians. Yeah, that's how much yeah. we value history and historians. And so I started reading a bunch of this, and I just thought, you know. A number of these senators, I, I knew a lot of them had been good progressives. Uh, some of them, there's one in particular I'd never heard of, Glenn Taylor, but he had a really interesting life and, and contribution to our country in the last hundred years. And, and over 11 years, I wrote this. I, I stopped. I started. I did a lot of research. I read about 160 books and interviewed about 100 people and uh, took 11 years to do it. I mean, most of these senators are pretty lost to history, including a number of the eight I chose to talk about. Yeah, tell me about Glenn Taylor. I hadn't heard of him. Yeah, Glenn Glenn Taylor was a um from Idaho. He ran for Congress once in the Senate six times and he won once. Um he was elected. He um he was most known in Idaho for um the Glendora band. And the Glendora band was Glenn Taylor, Glenn Dora Taylor, his wife, and their son and you as a baseball fan appreciates this. Dora's son, Doran Glenn's son is Dora spelled backwards, A-Rod. Oh and A-Rod Taylor would sing with his parents. He was 10, 12 years old and would go around and he would sing it and they'd pass the hat. And that's how they made a living. Um, I reached A-Rod. The most fun interview I did was A-Rod in 2009. I reached him, a retired dentist in California. And he told me this story about his father. His father, he, he was the running mate, vice presidential running mate for um, the Progressive Party, Henry Wallace, in 1948. And Glenn Taylor, being the progressive, outspoken, take no prisoners kind of guy, uh, spoke in front of an integrated audience and walked in the the door that next to the door said "coloreds only." And he was picked up uh, by the police. He spent the evening, spent the night in um, in Bull Connor's jail in 1948. Huh. Bull, Bull Connor is known 15 years later for the fire hoses and the dogs that he turned on black demonstrators, including Dr. King. Wow. And Glenn Taylor ran and lost several times. He would not be dissuaded. Yeah, every every year, every even number year from 1938 to 1956, I think except twice, mm -hmm. he was on the ballot. And he was red-baited, and a few of these figures, a few of these senators were, and some fought it off more uh, successfully than the others. Yeah, some had an easier ability to do it because, um, uh, you know, somebody in, in Rhode Island or New York had a better a better constituency, if you will, to to fight back on those issues. And a number of Democrats were defeated in 1950 um, or 52 or 54 because of McCarthy. Uh, Herbert Lehman, who was a New York senator, he was one who tangled with uh, McCarthy. Yeah, McCar Herbert Lehman was the son and the and the uh, the son and the nephew of the two founders of the venerable. Um, that met its demise, Lehman Brothers firm. One, so he was one of the 
most distinguished families in New York. Um, they started off as cotton traders in Alabama and ended up starting a bank in the Lehman Brothers Bank in New York. And he was the governor of New York right after Roosevelt. He was lieutenant governor when Roosevelt became governor. And he started what was called the Little New Deal while Roosevelt was doing it in Washington. Lehman did it in New York and did a lot of the same things, but did it more easily because there was not the conservative resistance. There were some in New York, but not like nationally. Now, as far as getting along with your fellow senators, uh, this has become sort of a proxy fight in the Democratic primary where Joe Biden talks about the power of doing this. And to some extent, so does uh, Pete Buttigieg. And you can analyze, is it that they really think because they know how to shake hands, they'll get things done? And some of their critics, I think, rightly and but some also wrongly say that that is just not realistic, given how much the Republican Party wants to be the party of opposition. How far can having personal relationships and wanting to do some reaching across the aisle, how far can that go if we're talking about progressivism and deep structural change? Well, deep structural change. It, 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 getting along with colleagues is important. And I, I've always thought about politics. It's it's whom you fight for and what you fight against. I I never try to make it personal. Um, I think there's just no reason to do that. But when I think about whom I fight for, I really do think about people and in groups and low income people and people of color and voting rights. And, and I think about kids getting sick from environmental issues. I mean, you want to do that, but I don't want to make it personal towards Mitch McConnell or towards, um, Ted Cruz or anybody else. I don't think that serves you, but a real quick story. I was, um, a senator from Missouri, Roy Blunt, very conservative. As conservative as I am, progressive was the secretary of state in Missouri when I was secretary of state of Ohio. And he told somebody a year or two ago, he said, I've known Sherrod Brown 30 years and we've agreed exactly on five issues. And he laughs and he said, but all five of those are federal law. And <laughs> meaning I find if I'm working, I'm working now on expanding the earned income tax credit and um, working on a pension bill that will really matter for a bunch of people that could lose their pensions. And and I've picked out three or four Republican senators that I've been talking to that that might might work with me on it. Um, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I know that Ted Cruz won't, Mitch McConnell won't. I can list a name, bunch of names of people that won't, but um, you find people that will. I, I But I also think that when I hear presidential candidates talking about, um, you know, they just don't dwell too much on the past, especially on. Some, I mean, we've seen we've seen Mitch McConnell not want to work with Democrats on anything. Yeah. And Obama always thought McConnell. I mean, for some time, Obama thought McConnell would play it straight and McConnell never did. Well, when you pick or select the five that you're going to target, how much is personal agreeableness a factor and how much is it that they see that it's in their interests and will appeal to their constituency and be good policy? Um, it's all that. It's, that's a good question. I, I've not tried to rank it. It's it's personal relationship is one, but I have something of a relationship with everybody a little bit, some more than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe it's I one one guy I work on veterans issues with a lot. Um, I see him in the gym almost every morning and we talk about all kinds of stuff. Um, part of it is what is their history? Some Republicans actually want to do things occasionally. A few Republicans want to do things for low income people and want to do things for, for the environment. Not very many, unfortunately, in this total Donald Trump Republican party. So you find out what history they have. You think about your personal relationship and you think about their state. I think that, um, Cory Gardner of Colorado is going to be working with Democrats a little more than he used to is my guess because he's in real political trouble for reelection. So you, you calculate all those things. 
Um, as I read through your biographies and your reflections on them, I said to myself, I wonder how many of these people who are now hailing as at least, if not greats, then very goods of the Senate, how many of them would have biographies that they'd have to answer for, you know, Al Gore Sr. just for working with, just like Joe Biden has to answer for working with people who were segregationists. Or you talked about Lehman and how his name was literally synonymous because it was his family's name of some large financial corporation. I guess the question is, if these guys have these good track records of progressivism, are progressives applying such a purity test as to select against these sorts of uh, figures in the future? That's a very good question. I, first of all, all of them were uneven. Um, all, most of us are, and, uh, including leading progressives in the Senate today are, are uneven, have not always been in the right, what I would consider the progressive side of an issue at some point during their lives, their careers, whatever. I mean, Hugo Black's the best example. Hugo Black, um, Supreme Court justice, senator from Alabama first, then Supreme Court. He started off, he's, he was a member of the KKK, and he said later, he renounced it quickly after he was elected, but his membership, but he said later, I would have joined any group that got me votes. Um, he, 30 years later, not forgiving what he did and justifying it at all. But 30 years later, he was burned in effigy at his law school in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, um, because he was a major push for the Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education, the first big leap for the Supreme Court into the, into the issue of civil rights up against segregation. So, um, and he was known as a civil libertarian. So you, 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 you embrace change. You want them to change. You've got to accept when they change. But you also don't you can't forget somebody that did something like that. Well, beyond Hugo Black's uh, association with the Klan and so forth, when I think of his jurisprudence as a member of the Supreme Court, I don't associate it so much with progressive causes. I mean, he wrote the opinion in Karamatsu and he was against yeah, uh, right, right. Was against Early the right. Time. Yep. Right. And he was against the right to privacy. So, OK, I, I have two questions. Do you think he was more progressive in the Senate? And the second question is, do you think his Senate experience informed his uh, time on the court? I mean, I, 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 I'll start with one other thing. I don't know that all eight of these people would have called themselves progressives or liberals either. Yeah. I, I looked at this. As Ta Taylor a, would have. Yeah. He ran for president or yeah, vice president. Yeah, yeah. Ta Taylor, Taylor yeah. for sure would have. Yeah. And Kennedy would have. Yeah. McGovern did. Yeah. But I'm not so sure about Black. I'm not so sure about Lehman would have. Not so sure about Gore. Um, I'm not sure that it would have worked in their states to label them that. I don't mm -hmm. think labels matter a lot, but politicians often do. But I think Black, I mean, Black, I wrote about Black because of what Black did. He became Roosevelt's favorite Southern senator um, because he worked so much on the 40-hour work week and in collective bargaining and minimum wage. And in, in, in the National Labor Relations Board, he worked with Senator Wagner of New York. So um, I, I appreciate that part of his career then. Much of his Supreme Court in the last 10 or 15 years in the court, 20 years maybe, he was considered a civil, you know, great civil libertarian. But again, I don't excuse certain behavior and I, I don't claim any of, any of us are anything but uneven in our work. Okay. Now, this uh, interview so far has been, uh, I think, mostly complimentary from me to you, but I do have to blow the whistle on myself and that when you were considering running and doing a big press rollout, you talked a lot about the dignity of work. And I did criticize you on my show because I thought that that phrase had connotations of, I don't know, um, perhaps looking down on people who might not work or talking to someone who might be questioning, oh, do these people not want to work? I got 
a letter, an email from a listener that said you completely misunderstood Sherrod Brown's message about the dignity of work to paint him as a cheap ploy to appeal to the macho macho undertones of the white working class man indicates you spent no time listening to what he says about the dignity of work. He credits the term to MLK's writings and the speeches of Did marriage. Did my wife send you that? I didn't your, think she sent it. Your daughter sent me that. Oh, my daughter? She <laughs> yes. honestly got? <laughs> yes. It was oh, from, wow. Yeah. It, was, it starts off, I admit this is a weird email. I'm a frequent listener of the gist. I happen to be oh Sherrod gosh. Brown's who, daughter. Was so, it Elizabeth or Emily? It, uh, no, it was Elizabeth. Who's, Elizabeth. She's, she's, she's an elected official in Columbus. In Columbus yes, yeah, yeah. Yes. So here, <laughs> can you can, can I I would love you to send that to me and now and now I know she didn't you're, tell me she did that. <laughs> yeah. And well, now you know my email address. Yes, right. So this was it, in December when I was talking about it, but I do have to say even if your intention is pure about the dignity of work, why do you have to emphasize or sell it emphasizing the dignity? Shouldn't it just be if we were um exalted enough members of this species, shouldn't we immediately recognize that there is dignity of work and even better there's just money that comes from work, and we all need money to live. Well, we should recognize it, but the term first came from Pope Leo XIII, who was known as the labor pope at the turn of the 20th century. And um, and he was in response to the Industrial Revolution, all the immigrants that were so, including in the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory in New York that were killed on the job. Um, Dr. King talked about it a lot. All work has dignity. And he said, no job is menial if it pays an adequate wage. And to me, the reason I talked about dignity of work is so many people in this country, people that clean offices, people that work construction, people that push the wheelchairs at the airports, nobody asks them their name. Nobody sees them. Nobody pays attention to them. They're paid low wages. They so often have no benefits. All work to me has dignity and all work should be celebrated. And the criticism of the dignity of work Less what you said was more, well, Brown's just talking about white male Trump voters that belong to unions. And I, I clearly wasn't. I was talking to workers who, um, to, to all people. And, and, and work is a pretty expansive term. It's not just low-wage workers. It's people staying home and, and taking care of kids. It's people taking care of aging parents. Um, all of that has a dignity to, to it that this society doesn't ascribe to work. And I want us to look differently at what work means. It's not just, it's not just pay. It's contributing to society. We all work because we need to make money. I understand. And work should be, we, we all should have, we all should believe in the dignity of work for each other. Sherrod Brown is a senator from Ohio. His new book is out. It's called Desk 88. It's about the desk he sits at, the desk that Robert Kennedy and Herbert Lehman and Hugo Black and many others sat at. Desk 88, eight progressive senators who changed America. Good talking with you. Great discussion. Thanks. Thank you, sir. And now the spiel. South Carolina, the Palmetto State, the eighth state to ratify the Constitution, the first state to break from that via secession. It is ranked 42nd in the U.S. News and World Report's ranking of the states. You know how U.S. News and World Reports go. The state's tourism board tries to get people to apply to visit, only to reject them so as to appear more selective, U.S. News. But South Carolina plays an important role in the process of nominating the next Democratic candidate for president. You have no doubt heard about that. Of the early voting states, it is the only one where the majority of Democratic voters are black. Chris Wallace mentioned all this on Fox News this Sunday. No Democrat has ever won Iowa and New Hampshire and then not got on to win the nomination. So where does that put Buttigieg if obviously all this can change, but if he were 
to go ahead and win Iowa and and either finish first or second in New Hampshire. He'd be in super strong shape. And even it, if he goes into South Carolina and he's at zero percent, that is where he would kind of hit a wall. Now, that was looking at South Carolina as perhaps helping Joe Biden because of South Carolina's overwhelmingly almost two thirds African-American composition of the Democratic electorate. The Washington Post's Jonathan Capehart was on left, right, and center, and he also talked up South Carolina. He emphasized, again, the overwhelmingly African-American Democratic electorate, but this time to make a case for Kamala Harris. What about South Carolina? And South Carolina is extremely important, but also keep this number in mind, 62%. 62% of the Democratic electorate in South Carolina is African-American. And so while Mayor Pete... Um, is ahead in Iowa, surging in New Hampshire. If he can't win South Carolina, then that does not bode well for him getting the nomination. So in both cases, the idea is Pete Buttigieg lacks for black support. Therefore, Pete Buttigieg and anyone else really will not be able to get the South Carolina vote. And without the South Carolina vote, the nomination itself could be shaky. I think so much of this, so many of these planks are wildly overstated. First, pundits are using phrases like winning South Carolina or winning Iowa or coming out of New Hampshire the victor. There's no such thing. There's no winning Iowa. It's a collection of delegates. The winner of each caucus or primary is the candidate who gets the most delegates. Sure, we could call him or her the winner, but it's proportional. So if the 41 delegates in Iowa could work like this, Buttigieg gets 12, Warren gets 11, Sanders 10, Biden 8. So we say Buttigieg wins Iowa, but that's a headline. It's a data point a little bit. What he really did was win a few more delegates on the way to 4,594 total. On to New Hampshire with its 24 delegates out of 4,594. Nevada with its 36th. Notice, by the way, the Nevada erasure in all this. Also, the fact that no one talks about Nevada, none of the clips I played, none of the clips you probably heard where they talk about Iowa, New Hampshire, and then on South Carolina. Once you skip past Nevada, it does put a crimp in the idea that it's all about a more proportionate representation in terms of ethnicity, since Nevada is very largely Latino. Just throwing that out there. So proportionality means that if you put aside the idea of winning a state, which is a fiction, you will have the different candidates coming into the South Carolina primary, each having won a few delegates. Will the fact that, I don't know, let's say Elizabeth Warren won the most, mean that Kamala Harris can't win the most in South Carolina? It will not mean that. But what it will mean is that winning, quote unquote, winning South Carolina or winning the black voters in South Carolina, very hard for that to make up the ground lost in the first three contests. There is no winning a state. There is only collecting delegates. There is no logical scenario where a candidate who's done really poorly in Iowa, 41 delegates, New Hampshire, 24 delegates, Nevada, 36 delegates, will be saved by doing pretty well in South Carolina, 54 delegates. The New Yorker writes in a headline a few months ago, quote, the high stakes for Kamala Harris in the South Carolina primary. But If she does really poorly before South Carolina, then South Carolina will have much lower stakes. You're not going to be able to make up that ground. And she is doing rather poorly in South Carolina. Yes, she should have some natural appeal with the black community. And it is true that Pete Buttigieg is at zero with the black community in South Carolina. But Kamala Harris is at a whopping 
6% with the black community in South Carolina. That's high stakes Harris over there in a distant fourth place with the black community. Overall in South Carolina, she's at 3% of the total vote. And they do count the votes of the white voters in the South Carolina Democratic primary. They do actually do that, which means that Pete Buttigieg, though at zero with black voters right now, would be getting more delegates out of South Carolina than Kamala Harris. It's a long way of saying this. The notion of a stand that depends on Biden losing almost all his support, black voters being up for grabs, Kamala Harris getting a mass of black supporters, Buttigieg making zero inroads with the black community, all of that is a quadruple bank shot that I find pretty far-fetched. But even so, and this is my main point, even if all that does happen, it won't change the overall dynamic. My problem is not with an analysis of the black vote or the white vote or any of the candidates. I think Harris and Buttigieg both have virtues to recommend them. They both have flaws. But we should, as a country, as a media, we should not be hyping up South Carolina. I get why we have to hype Iowa. It is the first to vote. That is on February 3rd. And eight days later is New Hampshire. That is the first actual primary. It's hard not to pay attention to actual votes after all this time, to draw some inferences from those actual votes. But then I think there'll be diminishing information as well as diminishing delegate allotment with each contest. So Nevada takes place February 22nd. And South Carolina takes place a week after that. But here now is the giant squid of the deep, stalking these guppies. Three days after the South Carolina primary is Super Tuesday, which this year is not a misnomer. Super Tuesday is Alabama, Arkansas, California, Colorado, the Democrats abroad, Maine, Massachusetts, Minnesota, North Carolina, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Vermont, and Virginia. Together, those 15 nominating contests will select 1,345 delegates, which is over a third of all the Democratic convention delegates. That's three days after South Carolina. Let's say in South Carolina, I don't know, Harris, let's make her do well. She gets 22 delegates, and Warren gets 12, and Sanders gets 8, and Buttigieg gets 4. That'd be a nice win for Harris, right? But three days later, Texas has 228 delegates to a lot, Virginia 99, North Carolina 110, Minnesota 75, and California 416. There is no logical reason to focus on these silly small early contests. There is a psychological one on the first and probably the second. We can't help it. But the contest three days before Super Tuesday and to focus on that because the demographics there are favorable to a certain candidate and not another or because we presume the demographics to be favorable. It just doesn't make much sense. I have an analogy for you. Let's say we're covering and analyzing a contest between bears who want honey. No, I'm not going to make it bears and honey. I need something countable. Rabbits who want carrots. No, that's lame. Okay, okay. There's a contest and it's about aardvarks who love cherry tomatoes. Oh, you know aardvarks and their legendary affection for cherry tomatoes. Whichever aardvark gets to 2,500 cherry tomatoes wins out of almost 5,000 cherry tomatoes. So the first cherry tomato picking contest, probably in the Midwest, let's say the uh, Iowa, Elizabeth Aardvark gets 20, Petey the Aardvark gets 12, Joe Vark gets six, Bernie the Aardvark who hates millipedes and centipedes gets two, whatever. Then there's the cherry tomato contest. The second one, they split a little fewer cherry tomatoes than the first one. We wait a week. Cherry tomato picking contest three. They allot somewhere between the number of cherry tomatoes of the first and second contest. Okay, great. 
So now there's another small cherry tomato contest in seven days. You got 54 delicious cherry tomatoes to be picked by aardvarks. But in 10 days, so if you look just a couple days past that contest where they're picking 54 delicious cherry tomatoes, in 10 days, we're picking 1,345 cherry tomatoes. Don't you think that's the one you'd be focusing on? You would, and you wouldn't be wrong. In fact, I think if you were telling friends who are interested in but not obsessed with the aardvarks and their quest to get the most cherry tomatoes, that would be the one you'd be pointing to. Oh, no, look at that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there are 54 at stake in a week, but look 10 days out. 1,345 cherry tomatoes. If I were a responsible editor of, say, the Aardvark Cherry Tomato Gazette, or if I were Cherry Tomate Silver, proprietor of the empirical Aardvark site, 530cherrytomate.com, I would be focused on Super Cherry Tomato Tuesday. Now, listen, the stakes clearly not as important as aardvarks and their imaginary love of the cherry tomato. All we're talking about is democracy and a worthwhile opponent for Donald Trump. But I do think it's weird and I do think it's off that we're giving certain states this outsized importance that I do not think in real life they will actually wind up having. Anyway, that is my case. I could be wrong. You probably remember the spiel from a few months ago where I asserted that badgers don't like Scrabble. Of course, badgers love Scrabble. At this point, it's now almost a cliche. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He frequently fields calls from the aggrieved progeny of Albin Barkley because I frequently quote him as saying the vice presidency isn't worth a warm bucket of piss. He said that. A lot of people say it was spit, but no, Barkley said piss. Christina DeJosa also produces the gist solo today. In fact, part of her job is getting in early and fast forwarding through all the answering machine voicemails of members of the Freelinghuisen political dynasty after I dubbed them the Freelinghausens. The gist. I'm awaiting an angry email from Dick Cheney rejecting my description of Liz Cheney as a bit too loose with the truth and quick with the deployments, because that will match the one I got from Liz about Dick Cheney. Oomperu depperu dupperu, and thanks for listening.